Hello there. So we're just going to have a look at um, some of the key points when it comes to the Scottish context, which is Scotland and the era of the Great War. So we have four different components when it comes to this unit. And particularly, we have done the bulk of it uh, over that of the second period of remote learning too as well. So it's just to make sure that when it comes to revising, that we have, as I said before in class, about key examples of the Scottish experience. So we'll just have a look at, um, first of all, in terms of recruitment, life in the trenches, tactics and technology. You don't have to revise anything in terms about you know, why the war breaks out in terms of the short or the long-term causes and the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand is straight into the recruitment. Then it's having a look after the Scots on the Western Front, on to impact of society and culture, looking at defence of the Realm Act, rationing, changing rule of women, which actually their work and their war work really comes into the fourth component, the impact on politics, because they get the extension of the franchise in terms of the fancy way of saying getting the right to vote because of their war effort and uh, that they do contribute towards that of society as well as also the suffragists and the suffragettes and maybe even you know, argue the rent strikes too as well. Then we have a uh, look at conscription, conscience objectors, the casualties and the death rates and the need for commemoration. Then have a look at the impact on the economy and the industry and as I said to you in class you know these questions have come up multiple times about the impact of economy and industry. So they are very popular questions when it comes to that of um, the SK. And then having a look at um, the war work, the reserved occupations, post-war decline of heavy industries, the impacts on fishing and agriculture, and also the new industries in that of the 1920s. Then heading on to the impact of politics. And as I said, no, you can talk about the changing role of women and their war contribution. Also looking at the rent strikes, the women's suffrage campaigns being that of the suffragists and that of the suffragettes. And how it is that they get the right to vote. So jumping into having a look at recruitment. So why is it that we have many Scots that are being recruited for that of the front lines? So in just in terms of context, before we go into these Scottish examples, is that when Britain declared war in 1914, there was only about 80,000 men in the army. You know, we do not have any form of conscription in Britain that was considered to be a very un-British thing. So when war is declared and you know, we're fighting until that of Christmas, um, December 1914, supposedly, we need to think about we need to recruit more men. So it's a massive challenge here for the British government. And the person who takes up the mantle for recruitment is Lord Kitchener. He's a very famous war hero and is quickly appointed as Secretary of State and also launched the huge recruitment campaign through that of the media. So he wants to try to recruit 100,000 men in a year. But as we can see, he does very quickly more, meets that quota quickly than he thought. He made a very direct and personal appeal to the men of Britain. Posters were printed showing him pointing his finger. Passers-by with the words, your country needs you. A men felt very popular at the prospect of getting involved in it all too as well. So soldiers have to be at least 18 to join the army. Um, some of them do sign up at the age of 13 and 14 too as well. And um, the recruitment numbers really speak for itself. Like in August, we've got 300,000 men. By the time it's September, it's 450,000 men. 
By the time it comes to December now, we are down to 120, 100,000, but there has been a recruitment campaign. And a lot of times we always do pigeonhole it in terms of patriotism, the Belgian atrocities, peer pressure, guilt, sense of adventure, and that of money. But we do have to make sure that we do remember to bring in Scottish examples. So yes, with this propaganda campaign, men are made to feel patriotic and duty-bound. Make sure they feel like a man because if they do not sign up for war, this is when they can become emasculated. Men are made to feel really guilty, made to be feel a coward also in terms of looking after, um, they're supposed to be looking after the family. And if they're not prepared to go out and fight for the war, then it really showcases that they're not a man in society. And you have to remember like for our lessons on conscientious objectors about how the men are drawn, portrayed as women, trying to say that they're effeminate, they're not a man. And really, who are they in society? So there's pressure on men right from the get-go. We know that there's 54 million posters have been produced. We know that 8 million personal letters are also sent out as well. 12,000 public meetings are held and 20,000 speeches are made by that of military officials. So let's firstly look in terms of PALS battalions. So we have um, PALS battalions are formed in which we have a large group of soldiers within an army that generally fight, train and serve together and that they come from the same area, you know, with the Black Watch in terms of Fife, Firth, Kinross, Dundee and also Angus as well. And particularly when it comes even to the Scottish examples, you know, we can see that men were signing up in their football teams or in their job and occupations as well. So PAL battalions meant that men would sign up because they feel that they could fight and serve with people that they actually knew. The 16th Royal Scots was based around the Hearts football team. The 16 first team players joined the battalion and fought at the Battle of the Somme together. So the, particularly the two famous Scottish examples for PAL battalions are the 15th Battalion, which is the Highland Light Infantry. And this is named after um, the Glasgow Regiment's Tramway Battalion. No, there are tramway drivers and workers and they've signed up here together. Then we have the McRae's Battalion, which is made up of the heart of Midlothian football team and also supporters um, too as well. And basically when it comes to McRae's Battalion, that the footballers of heart of Midlothian football team continue to play football once the war had started and were accused of cowardice because of continuing on and it was referred to in the media as awful farce of football. The Edinburgh Evening News suggested that they should be renamed the White Feathers of Midlothian. Sir George McRae launched an appeal for recruits and within seven days 13 professional footballers and hundreds of supporters had signed up. And they do suffer in terms of mass losses to the Battle of the Somme and three players are also killed too as well. But also with that of Palace Battalions we do have a Scottish example when it comes to needs for employment. By 1911, about 45% of the Scots lived in industrial urban areas such as Glasgow, Lanarkshire and Fife. Their jobs would often be on certain wages. Low wages were also low and conditions were very poor as well. And many saw the opportunity to go to war as a form of um, escapism too as well. There's also that case uh, as well when it comes to the Belgian atrocities, you know, xenophobia and hatred and distrust towards the Germans as well. That there was a thought that, you know, the Germans here that lived in Britain were that of spies. Um, there was such anti-German sentiment that um, things such as German shepherd dogs became known as Alsatians. Personally, I would stay away from that. You know, you can see from the need of employment how 45 of Scots are living in industrial urban areas and also the Pals battalions, that those are more keen uh, Scottish examples. We also, in terms of, have that concept of when it comes to um, adventure, 
to you as well about how they felt in the war was going to be over by Christmas time. It's a sense to get abroad, to experience new things um, to you as well. Different cuisine, different sites, opportunity to perform heroic deeds um, to you as well. You have the martial tradition, which is in terms of how the Scots have a very strong um, sense of purpose as fighters that they have shown throughout history that um, Scottish Wars of Independence, the Jacobite uh, Wars as well, that they're valiant, brave soldiers. So it's the idea that men feel encouraged to enlist as a Scotsman because they have the weight of history upon them, that they can fulfil what their, their ancestors have done to you as well, and particularly across the British Empire. The Scots are renowned for their bravery. And there you have it, that the Germans even refer to them as the ladies from hell. So that's another um, third example when it comes to that of Scottish recruitment. So think about it in terms of you know, the Pals battalions, also about how young Scottish men are gathering at football teams in which they're being recruited. Um, you know, the adverts in Scottish newspapers, the recruitment meetings are held in Scotland too as well, you know, 12,000. Also, in terms of you no know, the wages being lower, forty five percent of those living in areas that you know em- employment is uncertain. The martial tradition, palace battalions. These are all things to think about when it comes to that. Off the Scottish example. Moving on from that, then we have in terms of the experience in the trenches and what we have to remember. You know that rats here cause disease and um. We have the lice, but remember the lice is not on the uniform, the lice is on the kilts, that there's very cold and wet conditions that result in trench food for many Scottish soldiers, that um, Scottish soldiers are surrounded by dead bodies, and how in the hot weather that Scottish soldiers could be plagued by flies and smells, and you know, Scottish soldiers also do suffer from that of shell shock too as well. So it's all broken down to that of disease, poor conditions, danger and that of routine. So we have trench feet, which has caused long-term exposure of feet to water and mud. And this can lead to the feet and the legs sometimes with gangrene being amputated. And uh, we've got trench fever in terms of the lice that is riddled into that of the uniform because you're not able to have proper sanitation or proper cleaning facilities um, to you as well. So it can come around in terms of high fever, headaches, aching muscles and skin sores to you as well. And we also have shell shock. So particularly... As I was saying to the class on Tuesday, like when you're given example of things, it's just really make it Scottish and you just can say that there's many Scots that suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder, that of shell shock, also in terms of trench fever and trench food um, too as well and how Scottish soldiers had to suffer the conditions of rats and also the lice um, too as well. But, you know, so soldiers are facing constant bombardment with the artillery fire and gas attacks, which is referred to as the Daily Hate Campaign. Also, in turn, or sorry, not campaign, routine, daily hit routine. Then we have the sticking your head above the parapet and being a serious risk of being shot by that of a sniper. And you have to deal with constantly enemy attacks. So men only spent 20% of their time in the front line trenches. The rest of the time was filled with that of drill and also training as well. While in the trenches, men had to repair barbed wire, dig out the trains and create dugouts. There was boredom. No 12 million soldiers are sending Letters, there's like 12 million letters are being sent home each week. It's a very stressful environment because there is that saying that there's a bullet somewhere with your name on it uh, too as well. And that they're working day and night in proving that of the fortifications of the trenches um, too as well. 
So in terms of our tactics, so we have the famous over the top and you always hear about this referred to as the big push. And this is when we have a mass charge across no man's land towards the enemy trenches. You're being told that because of the artillery bombardment that there is no need to run. You can simply you can walk across no man's land and that you are promised that the barbed wire and the enemy's trenches are going to be destroyed. So it's going to be very easy for you to occupy and to seize the enemy's trenches. However, um, the men very much are getting bogged down, trapped in barbed wire if it's been awful weather conditions in terms of rain that these create massive um, craters for the men to actually wade themselves through and can slow down. So artillery bombardment is a big thing and that is used on the build-up here to the Battle of Luz as well as also in terms of the Battle of the Somme. But sometimes we can have a week-long artillery bombardment and at the end of that artillery bombardment, well then the Germans know that a British advance is inevitable. And that they can prepare themselves because they have well fortified trenches. We also, in terms, have the uh, so the artillery bombardment. It's all about causing about a huge amount of damage, and um, it'll can create consequences in terms of tangled up barbed wire, and the enemy could easily hide as well because the Germans have that for their concrete fortified trenches. But you're hoping for your artillery bombardment that the shelling is going to beat the enemy into submission. We also have the creeping barrage as well, which is when the shelling that moves progressively forward with the men falling behind. And you see it more done effectively at the Battle of Cambra as well as Arras. And this left the enemy no time to mount serious defence. But if the artillerymen got their calculations wrong, that they shell their own men. We have the preliminary bombardment, which is the enemy attack before that of launching a ground assault. But the enemies can hide underground and so it means then that you are well prepared and you're not going to give up your trenches easily. And we also have mining too as well, which is a tactic. From the Great War, we have advancements in technology, such as rifles, tanks, artillery, air power, gas and that of machine guns. With the rifle, particularly it's the Lee Enfield rifle, which is one of the most common weapons on the battlefield. And they had a bayonet attached to the end of the close quarters fighting when you reached that of the enemy trenches. It was easy to maintain. It was relatively light. You took a while in terms of training as well. However, it's a low rate of fire between that of 8 to 16 rounds per minute, which is not that effective. Now, the tanks here, which are initially called the land ships, are invented by the British in 1916. Used in the Battle of Cambrai the first time in November 1917. It's heavily armoured, which means it can provide protection for troops. It has the guns as well. It can cross no man's land and barbed wire without the risk of being mowed down by that of an enemy's machine gun. It can cause fear and shock in the enemy to you as well. However, it often broke down and men left inside were easy targets for the artillery. It often got stuck in the mud, was very slow and also went that of four miles an hour. Conditions inside were cramped and men stuck with the engine fumes and the first of them to be involved was 350 tanks. However, a significant number of these was destroyed in that off the battle. In terms of artillery, particularly we think of our artillery guns here too as well, which are used in the preliminary bombardment and these can cause up to 60% of battlefield casualties. And at the Battle of the Somme in 1916, more than 1 million shells were fired in German trenches in just the first eight days. What is good about the artillery is the fact that it can aim better and fire 
larger shells and can be used in moving tactics. Artillery bombardments could prevent that with the Germans from being able to move out of their dugouts. It can only be used from a fixed position, however, and had to be located far back from the front line, so communication could be cut off and sometimes it could not work and be reduced so quickly that it actually would not be able to work properly to you as well. Air power was very much experimental technology and mostly is used for renaissance in terms of spying on the enemy. But pilots do engage in dogfights in the skies above that of the trenches. In terms of the positives, it could be used to collect valuable information about the enemy plans. It began to carry machine guns, sometimes carry bombs or that of grenades, which we could use to drop from enemy positions. It can be an obvious target though and they can be flying low so be able to bring down and doesn't really have many significant impacts on um, battles during the First World War um, as well. In terms of machine guns, so it's a defensive weapon. It's used largely at the Battle of the Somme and helped cause 20,000 British deaths in just the first day. It's highly effective because it can fire 600 rounds a minute and you do not need much time to reload. And it's a very effective defence weapon. Most of these were mounted on that of the trenches and they could be used in terms of mowing down the enemy and to securing your own flank. However, two to three men are needed to overheat them and to, to work them. At times, they can also be overheat too as well and cause them to break down. And there are quite obvious um, targets for that of enemy fire. And then finally, having a look at gas. So we have chlorine gas, which destroyed the lungs and caused a very slow death. We have prosphene gas, which caused difficulty breathing and also death. And we have mustard gas, which caused major chemical burns. And it was an effective weapon at clearing large areas quickly, um, trying to disperse that off the enemy. But you had to make sure that you take into consideration the direction of the wind in case it does go back and also injures that of your own men. So that is Scots on the Western Front. When it comes to Dora, so it's Defence of the Realm Act. And we have this that is set up uh, after the, the war has been brought about. When it comes to 1915, there's more things that Dora does take into consideration after the Metician scandal, in which we have shells that are being produced, which are just not adequate when going to the Western Front because they're actually filled with sawdust. And at times they're also duds as well. So they're not effectively doing their job, right? And the government decides to take action. So really it's to give the government a wide ranging powers. And there's two things that come from the idea that it's going to take any of the land that the government wanted. And this will help in terms of producing food. Uh, also in terms of making sure that there's going to be food for that of the home front as well as the Western Front. And also in terms of press censorship. Now, because of the war and how it does um, become more prolonged, they don't want, in terms of the messages and the carnage that is happening at the Western Front, to filter through to society, just in case it would keep people off enlisting, volunteering, or in terms of turning the country against the war and people maybe demanding in terms of the war to end. So some examples of DOOR are such as how no civilian can talk about naval or military matters in a public space. There was no binoculars. There was no melting down of gold or silver. There was no bonfires, uh, fireworks or kite flying allowed. Not to feed bread to horses and chickens because we have to be quite considerate of what our food is. Also in terms of, you know, it's forbidden to loiter around that of bridges and tunnels just in case you're seen to be being someone who's sketching and um, locating to the enemy where things are. 
Also in terms of pubs, opening hours are limited and buying rounds are also forbidden as well. And the strength of alcohol is very much reduced to make sure that people aren't coming in with a massive hangover and that they can work um, productively and make sure that the shells or the meticians that they are producing is going to be up to standard for going out to the Western Front. News reports were rewritten and centres are manipulated in order to make sure we have public support and we continue on public support. And also the government can imprison anyone in that of um, the region without that of a trial as well. So Britain's success in the First World War was dependent on the support of people at the home front. So it was introduced to help to make sure that they had support. Flying a kite or lighting a bonfire could uh, attract that of zeppelins in terms of the enemy. And it can lead to people finding out important areas where things were or in terms of maybe a bombing campaign. It also limited to public help to reduce drunkenness and censorship of the reporting British troop movements, their numbers or any other operational information which prevent the enemy from finding out any sensitive information which potentially saved many lives. And that's important to note. And almost a million arrests happened under that off door. So 11 were accused of being a spy and it ended with that of their execution as well. An extension of door is that of um, rationing. It's not one of the clauses, but it's just in terms of looking at how the home front becomes more developed. So men who used to work on the farms left and went to that of war. So if the men are going to the war, what can we do? Because we have labour that has gone, also in terms of the horses have been taken to as well to be used for the Western Front since Sir Douglas Haig felt that the future of warfare was still going to be very much dependent on that of horse power. So what do we do? And this is when women are stepping and becoming a part of the women's land army, yes, but there's also legislation that is passed in order to make sure that there's enough food for the home front because you don't want people to be starved into surrender. You also need to make sure quintessentially that food is being um, delivered to the Western Front because if you can't feed your army, then it's game over too as well. Also to bear in mind as well is that by 1917, that the German Navy now is having unrestricted submarine warfare. So originally before that meant things like fishing boats and uh, containers that were transporting food and trade were not going to be targeted upon. Civilians um, shipping to you as well wasn't going to be targeted upon. And then we have a change here that anything here can be that of a target. So they have to keep that in mind. So in 1916, we have the wheat harvest crop has dropped. Also, we have the potato crop has failed. And then 1917, sorry, things are getting worse with that of unrestricted submarine warfare. So in 1916, the Ministry of Food Control is created. Door limits restaurant food consumption to you as well, making sure you're not having uh, three courses of food. 1917 people are asked to ration volunteering on a volunteer basis. All available land is taken for allotment so people can actually grow their own food. By 1918 now uh, rationing is compulsory. So the Women's Land Army is created and 23,000 women join and also there is support from that of 10,000 prisoners of war and ration books are introduced for things such as butter, margarine, lard, meat and sugar. So the big thing that happens on the impact of society across Britain, across the world and also um, since we're talking about Scottish history as well is down to the fact of women. So particularly like we do talk about this at higher history too as well about how women were deemed to have a smaller brain capacity than that of a man, that they were too emotional to deal with the vote. 
that they were their husband's, their father's property, and that all they thought about was baby's fashion and um, in terms of getting a marriage as well, that was considered to be the big role for that woman. And things such as you no know, being a teacher or being involved in a job, as soon as you got married, then you were required to give it up, really, in terms of getting ready for um, your more prominent role in society, which was seen to be that of a wife and that of a mother. Now, women are working in textile industries and factory industries, and there is a growing emergence of white-collar jobs, which is working in offices. But the war really does act as a catalyst for change, because they originally have said before the war, and the Prime Minister said this as well, about how he didn't want to give women the right to vote because he didn't see that they were responsible or capable enough for it. And at the end of the war, he turns around, Asquith turns around and he says about how the war could not be won about women. So it really shows that the World War One is this catalyst of change to showcase that women are actually equals, that they can do the work of men. So what type of jobs do they do? So they can get involved in the police in terms of the women's patrols to maintain discipline and monitor women's behaviour around factories or that of hostels. They carried out inspections so women didn't do anything into the factories which might cause explosions. Also patrolled that of public areas such as railway stations, streets, parks and public houses. They also worked in transport such as being that as a bus conductoress ticket collectors, porters, carriage cleaners and bus drivers and women were working on the real race rose from that of 9,000 to 50,000. Also in terms of having many different other job opportunities when it comes to that of the war, particularly in terms of being that of the, the Mouchonettes. So this was brought in 1915 in larger numbers and there's 900,000 by that of 1918. So they're well paid, but it's also unpleasant work and also very dangerous. It caused toxic jaundice when the skin turned yellow and they earned their nickname of canaries after the canary birds. So particularly what's striking here is the fact that, you know, they're working in the factories. They're handling that of TNT um, explosives um, too as well. And it's showcasing to men that they can fight in um, the home front, that they can make a valued contribution uh, too as well. And it's that start about how they can do more in terms of being that of wives and mothers. So particularly in that of um, Scotland, it's 30,000 women that are employed in Scotland, uh, which really shows them that they are worthy to focus. They are serving for king and country. And women in Scotland are taking over men's jobs, seem to change an attitude from the British government on issues of vote for that of women and getting involved in things such as agricultural banking, trams and also in terms of engineering uh, too as well. So it's showcasing that women can do more than what has been previously fought. So there's women's land army, as I mentioned, that is uh, initially it was quite funny that they thought women were too weak to actually work in the farms. But it is finally established in March 1917 and they become known as land girls. And they milked and took care of livestock and did general farm work. That They were paid 18 shillings per week and later rose of 20 uh, shillings. And that 23,000 women served in that of the Women's Land Army. We also have the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps, which was established in that of December 1916, which allowed women to do certain jobs that had done by men on the front in terms of being part of the Royal Naval Service, the Royal Air Force, and also 100,000 women served in the armed forces themselves. Particularly in terms of that's it's administration work, it's just in, also in terms of being nurses um, too as well. And it was founded in that of 1902, the Queen Alexandra's Imperial Nursing Service, 
and it rises that of um from three hundred members in um nineteen fourteen to ten thousand by nineteen eighteen, and was not generally liked by professional nurses on the front because they weren't qualified, but they did mostly the domestic labour, cleaning floors, and changing linen and bed pants. So it's just something to think about, you know, when it comes to these things like how does this really bring about change for women, and also in terms of them getting the right to vote because they're prepared to go out and to fight, uh, not necessarily fight, but to be in the front lines, you know, driving that of um, ambulances, serving that of nurses to you as well, being a part of the Royal Naval Service, Royal Air Force. So they're seeing in terms of what it's like on the front line, being involved in making sure that there's food for the country. If they don't have food, then we're not going to be able to fight against the Germans for much longer. And then also in terms of working in the factories, it really showcased that they can do the same job as that of men, that they're not seen as this weaker or inferior sex. So in terms of uh, recruitment, so we go from voluntary recruitment to that of conscription. And by January 1916, voluntary enlistment wasn't enough for British Army requirements. So the Military Service Act is introduced, and this is when men from the ages of 18 to 20, 18 to 41, sorry, can be called up for service in the army. And that's brought around in January 1916. There are exceptions, those, those who are married, um, those who are widowed with children, those serving in the Royal Navy, those who are minister of religion or working in reserved occupations, such as things like coal mining, things that you actually need um, people that are skilled and familiar with to make sure that the country can continue on. It was later updated, though, to change from the ages of 18 to 41 to 18 to 51 and also included that of married men too as well. So that change comes around um, shortly after. And in total, then, 2.5 million extra then are enlisted. But from this here, we do have conscientious objectors, men who say that they feel on a moral, moral, religious or political front that they do not want to, to sign up. But you also have to remember as well, there's also medical reasons too. So men who objected to, cons- con- to conscription were called conscientious objectors. So we had 16,000 in that of Britain. They were treated by the public in terms of being given that of white feathers, also publicly mocked. There was even disparaging reports about them appealing and the exception. So particularly when they have objected that they could be sent to prisons in which they have to have silence. They're not allowed to talk to anyone. It's really harsh conditions too as well very very basic food they're doing hard manual labor and because of these filthy conditions men do also um, die as well so they're forced to appeal to that of military tribunals and that they're given an option in terms to join as a non-combatment rule such as being a stretcher bearer or in terms of driving ambulances but some men will object in that because they'll say that they don't want to be anywhere near war so in terms of the moral stance is the idea that they feel it's wrong to take a life and an exception, uh, sorry, an example of this is E.G. Stephen um, Hobhouse who in military tribunal granted him the exception if he joined the Friends Ambulance Unit. He refused and was arrested, sent to jail, spent 112 days in jail and had to do that of hard labour because um, on the moral front some people said, you know, even this person is a German like, it's a bit weird because I th- the quote came around saying about, you know, if I had killed someone who was German before the war be murder, but then it seemed to be acceptable during this time of conflict, you know, killing someone is murder and that's how it rests with them. 
Also in terms of the religious arguments, some people feel it went against their religious convictions because of the Ten Commandments that no thou shalt not kill. So another example of that could be seen uh, from Bernard Lawson. He had to appeal to a military tribunal as he was exempted from as long as he served in the Friends Ambulance Unit. And also political, because some people felt, well, it's the working classes that are actually going off to fight. What about these people who are incredibly rich and high up in society? You know, this is a very imperialistic war. What is it we're fighting for? We're fighting here to gain more territory, more land, more money, more possession. Um, but such a man is the Scottish man, John McLean, who was sentenced to five years on prison. He actually went on hunger strikes and was forced fed and um, was released in 1918. So there are examples across the board.